Good morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Great to have you online. Um, if you're new here with us, uh, we, we tend to give this middle portion of our gathering to the Word of God. Uh, we believe that God is speaking to us through the Bible, and so it's our delight, it's our joy to see what He has for us each week, and we tend to just preach through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Luke for a long time. Uh, this section, verses, uh, sorry, chapters 9 to 11, has been sort of for the summer. And today we are in Luke 10, uh, verses 17 to 20. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, we have some at the Connect desk. If you're here with us, you can go and ask. Uh, we'll provide that for you. Or hopefully you can find it online. But the verses will be up on the screen. So I'd like to pray for us before we begin. And then we'll see what God has for us this morning. So join with me. Uh, Lord, we are thankful. Thankful, as always, that you continue to speak to us through your word. Thankful, God, that we can gather together. Uh, thankful, Lord, that uh, here in BC and uh, really in Canada, uh, Lord, we have been blessed with, with low numbers uh, in terms of COVID. Lord, we know that in many parts of the world, Lord, that is not the case. And so we pray for them. We pray for all of those still suffering with the virus, uh, those who are dealing with the economic fallout of the virus. Lord, we pray that there would be a vaccine found soon. We pray you'd bring comfort to those who are, who are dealing with the struggles in life right now. And I I pray, God, that for those of us who are needing that extra comfort, uh, Lord, that today we would find it. Lord, that you would, you would provide it to us through your word, through the gospel, and uh, God, that our hearts would be filled with your love for us. So help us now, Lord, to devote our, our attention and our focus to you, and that your spirit would speak to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, if you were here with us uh, or listening online, uh, you, you would have seen uh, really a really interesting uh, event sort of in the life of Jesus' ministry, which is that he sent out 72 disciples on kind of a short-term missions trip in the area of Galilee. Uh, their instructions were simple. Take no supplies, no resources, share the message of the kingdom, and heal and help those in need. Uh, today, we're going to see the result of that missionary trip. But before we get there, I thought I would share with you a modern-day version, a pretty amazing version of this kind of a missions trip. Uh, this story comes from the China Gospel Fellowship, which is a, uh, a home church network in China, uh, really composed of a lot of kind of rural uh, house churches, uh, peasants, farmers, and they got it into their minds and their heart to, to send uh, 70 of their people out into the most remote areas of China to preach the gospel. And so they raised money for this. Everyone was giving sacrificially. When they had what they thought was enough money, they commissioned uh, a group of 70 disciples, a lot of them young adults, some of them even teens. And uh, they basically said, here is enough money for a one-way ticket to wherever we're sending you to go, into these remote provinces of China, we want you to trust God, preach the gospel, and we'll see you in six months. And that's what happened. Six months later, uh, 70 disciples returned, uh, praising God, telling amazing stories of, of definite hardships. I mean, there were stories of them uh, living in the forest, living in ditches, being rejected by many, many people. And yet there were also stories of them establishing other home uh, churches. And to this day, some of those home churches number in the hundreds of thousands. So you can imagine the joy uh, in the China Gospel Fellowship. When everyone came back, they were praising God. And that's the same kind of joy we see here in our text this morning. That the, the disciples came back, were so excited for what God had done with them and through them. And Jesus, he shares in that joy. But interestingly, he shares in the joy, but also he tempers the joy. Because what he tells them is, look, you're right to be joyful about these things, but you have an even greater reason to be joyful simply because you are my disciple. 
So that's really what we're going to look at this morning. These two kinds of joy that he kind of compares and contrasts. And we're going to begin just by uh, reading the text. So this is verse 17 to 20. Uh, to 20. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So you can see there already that there is a distinction made by Jesus between these two kinds of joy. Uh, verse 20 is going to be sort of the, the main verse where we see this. He says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So there's kind of these two kinds of joy. One of them is like ultimate joy, the best kind of joy. And then another one is still joyful, but it's just beneath that. So we're going to look at both of these kinds of joy. Uh, the first one I'm going to call the penultimate Christian joy, because I love that word, and it means like almost the best. Not ultimate, penultimate, almost the best, and here is the penultimate Christian joy that we see in our text, power over our spiritual enemy. That's what they're excited about. That's the, the almost best Jesus is going to tell us. Not quite the best, but this is still pretty great. Power over our spiritual enemy, and we see this in verse 17. Uh, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, really, if you think about it, the general joy here is ministry success. Right? That's what they're most excited about. They had um, a, a mission to do, and it was a difficult one. There were no doubt many hardships, just like uh, the disciples in China. But it was not a failed mission. There, there was success. They were excited. They were able to care and heal many people. And the highlight was that they had power and authority over evil spirits. Now you have to remember that these were the same disciples that uh, earlier in chapter 9 had had trouble uh, casting out a demon from a young boy who had been afflicted uh, by this evil spirit for years. If you remember, this demon brought seizures on him and threw him into fire, threw him into water. His, his dad always had to care for him, and they had real trouble with this. So imagine the joy now for them to go out into the area of Galilee, and the, the demons obeyed their word. They spoke the name of Jesus. The demons were cast out. People were healed. People were delivered. Imagine the sense of wonder that God was using them to do this kind of powerful thing in the lives of, of the people there. I mean, we know, we should know that the satisfying feeling of helping uh, people around us, whether we're inside the church, outside the church, whether we're talking about spiritual help, any kind of help, it's, it's a satisfying, joyful thing to help people in need but as disciples of Jesus, what we're seeing here is that we can do more than simply care for people's material needs or emotional or physical needs. We can bring real spiritual protection and deliverance from the spiritual attacks of the enemy. So Jesus, he celebrates this. He affirms this. Uh, but he does it in kind of a, uh, well, a bit of a puzzling way. So here's his response to the disciples. They're very excited. Uh, verse 18 and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So that last part seems fairly clear. Right? The authority that they enjoyed has been given to them by Jesus. Right? He's the real source of their power. They didn't have anything in them because they spoke in the name of Jesus, because they were disciples of Jesus, they then had this authority. But this phrase that Jesus uses is a bit uh, probably unfamiliar. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
So what does he mean by that? Well, there are, there are two options uh, in terms of what Jesus is talking about. One of them is that he's looking back to Satan's initial fall from heaven where he, he tried to usurp God's throne and was cast out of heaven. Or he's looking forward to Satan's final defeat at the second coming of Jesus. Uh, now, it actually could be either one because sometimes in biblical prophecy, the prophet will speak in the past tense. So even though Jesus said, I saw Satan you know, falling, it could be that he's speaking like it's already been accomplished. That sometimes happens. Um, we have references to this in the Bible. Here's, if he was looking back, we have Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, this is a bit figurative, kind of poetic, but it's speaking of Satan. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Uh, pretty much every biblical commentator says this is, this is most likely a reference to Lucifer, the most beautiful age, angel who tried to, to take God's place in heaven and he was cast out by the armies of heaven. But if he's looking ahead, it may be that Revelation 12, 7, and 9 gives us a picture of this. Uh, it says, Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now even that, people, some, some commentators say that is even looking back to Satan's initial fall. But what's very clear is that Satan was defeated at the beginning and he will be defeated in the end. He'll be thrown into the pit of fire. We see that in Revelation. So, Either way, Jesus' point is clear. Despite Satan's power, he is now and will forever be subject to the ultimate power of Jesus. And, and amazingly, we as disciples, we can experience the pleasure of being a conduit of that kind of power. That where there is spiritual oppression, spiritual attack in our lives or in the lives of people around us, in the name of Jesus, we can bring hope. We can bring healing and, and deliverance. Uh, that's what it means when Jesus says that they are to tread. They can tread on serpents and scorpions. So this kind of spiritual power is one of the penultimate joys. The, the not greatest joy, but a pretty great, amazing thing, an enjoyable thing to be a disciple of Jesus. And this is not, just so we're clear, like a special thing that just these disciples had access to or like the super holy Christians get to do, this is true of all of us. Everyone who has faith in Jesus, who believes in the cross, now has access to Jesus. We have this kind of spiritual power at our disposal. In fact, we see this um, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So notice there that Satan is described as having the power of death. That doesn't mean that Satan holds life and death in his hands. What it means is that through his wicked activities, his temptation to sin, he leads many, many people into death. But Jesus, coming in flesh, dying in the flesh, in our place, he destroys that power of death. That now he no longer has the ability to condemn us in our sin because we are freed from our sin. Because of what Jesus did, Satan was destroyed. The, the death that he brings is, is eradicated. Satan's still around, but the power of death that he holds over us is, is gone. As disciples of Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bound to wickedness. 
We have been set free from every spiritual oppression. And what we see here again is that we have the ability to help others who are dealing with this kind of spiritual attack. Now you might wonder, what does this look like for us today? It seems like in this instance, they were literally casting out demons, like exorcisms. They were, I mean, it was very dramatic, you know, spiritual sort of war going on. And, you know, you might be wondering, is that, is that what's expected of me as a disciple of Jesus? And the answer is, well, sometimes yes. Even today, uh, especially in certain areas of the world where the gospel is just breaking through into a culture, there is this kind of spiritual uh, oppression and this kind of spiritual warfare goes on. But most of the time, most of the time, we're not dealing with overt demonic activity. Most of the time, it's more subtle. Uh, most of the attacks that we deal with uh, are in terms of deception and temptation into sin. And in fact, uh, we find in the book of 1 John a really clear connection between the habitual sin in our life and the activities of Satan. So let's look at this passage, um, which makes this clear. Here's 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Little children... There's a little child in our midst that is responding to this, I can tell. Little children, that's actually us. Uh, he says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now the idea here, just so we're clear, is not that every instance of sin in our lives means that then we are a child of the devil. What it means is that the ongoing practice of sin reveals something sinister that is true about our heart. See, to be a Christian doesn't mean that we are perfect, but it does mean that we are actively struggling against sin. In fact, a very good sign in our lives is that we are actively repenting. That's the pattern of our lives, repentance, identifying sin, realizing the wrongness of it, confessing sin, repenting of it, turning to go the other way, that we are continually pleading the cross of Jesus. That's the very hope of the gospel. If you're struggling with sin, that, that's actually a good sign, that God's spirit is at work. What's not a good sign is if you are at peace with your sin. If there's a, a habit of sin, of mind, of heart, if there's some area of your life where you've just said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to overcome that. I'm just going to make peace with it. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. That, that's not a good sign. It, it, it's most likely the case that there is satanic deception at work because your mind and heart have come to the point of saying, I'm okay with that. And a child of God is never okay with the presence of sin in their life. In fact, the Bible goes further to give us some specific examples, some ties between some uh, particular sins and, and how that ties into the influence of Satan. So here's just a couple of them. Um, here's John 8, 44, speaking about lying. Here Jesus is speaking to some uh, religious leaders who are dishonest. He says, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what Jesus is saying to the, this group of people is, look, you're dishonest because in your heart, you're really, you're at this moment a child of the devil. You don't want to do what is right. You want to do what's easy. And so dishonesty, lying, that's what comes out of your mouth. He, he, what we're seeing there is a connection between the practice of a specific sin and the influence of, of the devil. 
Here's another one. Uh, this is in terms of bitterness or, or unforgiveness. Hebrews 12:15 says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble." Notice there the danger is that we do not obtain the grace of God. That's really Satan's goal in our life is that we will be separated from the grace of God. And one of the ways this happens is by having very hard hearts, by hanging on to the offense of others, by nurturing that bitterness, instead of extending forgiveness, instead of being soft-hearted, instead of remembering the grace that we've received from Jesus, we're hard-hearted with each other. We allow that bitterness to grow, and, and there we see the evidence of sin and the effect of Satan in our lives. See, the truth is that all sin plagues us as human beings, but Jesus reminds us that as disciples, even though we are tempted into patterns of sin, and even though our own wicked heart kind of leans that way many times, our fleshly nature, and Satan himself tempts us in that way, we have been delivered from sin. That, that's the joy of being a disciple. That's the, the reality that we have this power and authority over the agents of darkness in our lives. Because of the cross, we are not bound to sin anymore. The battle of our hearts has already been won. And so what we really need to do is remember the things that are already true about us. Things that Jesus has done for us and given us. We, we are forgiven. We're children of light. We're redeemed. We can counter the lies of the enemy with the words of Jesus. We can pray for ourselves and others in the name and authority of Jesus. And we can experience the, the joy of having hope even in the midst of our sin. Forgiveness even in the midst of our wrongs. And we can delight in praying for others in the same way. When people are downcast, people are really struggling, we can remind them, look, you're a child of God. As you struggle, the Spirit of God will bring you, bring you encouragement and strength. See, this is a great joy. This is the joy that the disciples were so excited about. As they came back, they'd been in the trenches of spiritual warfare. They'd been praying for people. They'd been casting out demons. They were totally stoked. And Jesus says, you're right to be excited. This is amazing. This is fantastic. But, but this is not even the best joy that you have. This is where he turns the corner. You can imagine them being like, well, what could be better than this? We never dreamed that we would be able to do this. And Jesus says, this is a great joy, but not the greatest joy. So let's turn our attention to that. The greatest joy that you have as disciples of Jesus is this. I'm going to call it the ultimate Christian joy. Simply, it's eternal life. Eternal life is our ultimate Christian joy, and we see it uh, in verse 20, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying, look, you shouldn't be happy about this. He's, it's like a rhetorical advice. He's just saying, compared to this other joy, that first joy you had is like, is like nothing. Compared to the real joy, which is eternal life, which is that you are my disciples. Your names are written in heaven. By which you might be wondering, what exactly uh, does that mean? What does that mean to have our names written in heaven? Well, there's a few places in the Bible um, that make reference to an actual written record of names in heaven. It's, it's a book called the Book of Life. Uh, there's times in Philippians 4.3 where it talks about those whose names are written in the book of life. Hebrews 12.23 talks about being enrolled in heaven, but uh, really the best examples, the clearest, are in Revelation. In Revelation 20.15, speaking of the final judgment, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 21.27, speaking of heaven, it says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the Lamb is Jesus, and basically what we're seeing here is that there is a book of life, which is a registry of all those who ever uh, have or ever will come to faith in Jesus and have received everlasting spiritual life. So the significance of this list cannot be overstated. I mean, having your name written in the book of life means that you are a true disciple of Jesus. Uh, you're spiritually alive. Your sins are forgiven. You are a legal, documented citizen of heaven. And just think about how important that is for us, even from a, like a political point of view. Think of the benefits of being a legal, documented citizen of Canada. That's a good thing. We as citizens of Canada, have many benefits at our disposal. We're, we expect to be protected by the military. We can enjoy the, the medical system because our names are on a list. Even when we're outside of the country, if something happens, we can appeal to the embassy and they will help us just because somewhere in Ottawa there's a, there's a list somewhere and our names are on it. Citizenship rights give us security and belonging in small measure here on earth, but in infinite measure when it comes to being citizens of heaven. We, we enjoy perfect, perfect peace, perfect joy, uh, hope everlasting, the presence of God. So the point Jesus is making is, look, look, disciples, it's great. It's great that you are experiencing the thrill of casting out demons, but that is a small thing compared to the greater joy of just being my disciple. And what he's really saying, because he, he's almost kind of He's correcting them in a sense. What he's really saying to them is, look, you better make sure that your joys are in the right priority. That your greatest joy is in fact at the forefront of your mind and your heart and all the other penultimate joys. There's many of them, that's great, but they come after it. And I think this is important for us to, to realize as well, to be corrected in this way. Because I think for most of us, it's very easy to get focused on the smaller joys in life. And forget the greater joys of eternal life in heaven. I mean, if you think about it, how often do we really think about all the benefits of heaven? I mean, if, for, if you're a Christian this morning, you, you probably celebrate, praise God for lots of things that are going on in your life. But they tend to be material things, don't they? Uh, earthly things. Things like if you're healthy, praise God. If finances are going well, that's amazing. Praise God for that. If you've had victory over sin, if you've had ministry success, I mean, if we had a missions trip like, like this and we sent people out and they came back telling us about all the success, we would, we would rightly praise God and we should. These are good things. So many great things that God is doing in our lives and we should thank him for them. But, but they're not the best thing. None of them are the best thing. And, and something... There's some danger that happens if we don't make sure that the best thing is at the forefront of our joy. So I want to take a moment just to remember a couple things that distinguish eternal life as the greatest joy for us as, as Christians. If you're watching and you're not a Christian, um, I think this will be interesting. I hope it will be helpful for you to see what it is it. What is it that the Christian church thinks is the very best thing that we can receive from God? So we're saying it's eternal life, but why? A couple reasons. Here's the first. The joy of eternal life is our greatest joy because it is not dependent on any other good thing. It's not dependent. No matter what else is going on, it's not tied to those things. Unto itself, it is joyful. 
Uh, the thing that came to my mind in terms of illustrating this fact about eternal life was a song uh, by the good Canadian kid Brian Adams. Uh, he has a song called When You're Gone. You remember this song? I thought I would just sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Um, this song is about uh, when you uh, get dumped, basically, right? He's singing about, the, I think it's his girlfriend who, who dumped him, and uh, he's talking about now how he feels. And how he feels is that everything else in life is, is kind of bland and tasteless, and none of it brings him joy anymore because uh, the love of, of his life is gone. So I am going to read you some of the lyrics. I won't sing, I promise. Uh, here's what Brian Adams says. He says, Baby, when you're gone, I realize I'm in love. Days go on and on, and the nights just seem so long. Even food don't taste that good. Drink ain't doing what it should. Things just feel so wrong. Baby, when you're gone, yeah. There's a yeah there. Oh, this is torture, he says. This is pain. It feels like I'm going to go insane. I hope you're coming back real soon, because I don't know what to do. This song was released in 1998. It's, it's vividly etched in my mind because I think this was the second time uh, that Don uh, broke up with me. And I remember playing the song on repeat in my car, just weeping. <laughs> yes, Brian Adams, you speak for my heart. That's not, that's not totally true. But uh, the song does do a good job of illustrating how the lesser joys of life tend to depend on each other. Right? When something bad happens in our life, all the other good things that we were enjoying, all of a sudden they don't seem like they, they are joyful anymore or enjoyable uh, food, uh, drink, sleep, the things that we watch, all of a sudden, everything, we, nothing matters anymore. We just want to sit in a ball and, and weep because we're, we're so sad. Everything else in life feels hollow and empty because the earthly joys of life, they tend to depend on each other. They're contingent upon each other. But eternal life, eternal life is not like that. It's not dependent upon anything else to make us happy. In fact, it's the one thing that continues to give us reason for joy even if all the other things are gone. I remember uh, a Christian family that I knew a few years ago uh, from church and uh, they, they went through a very um, sort of uh, urgent financial crisis. Uh, they had been involved in the stock market and had been doing well for a number of years, but through, you know, a, a couple of bad investments, in a short amount of time, they found themselves very near to bankruptcy. They had to sell their house, move into a, a two-bedroom condo, and I remember helping them move. And I remember just, like, taking the boxes out of this, this nice big house and bringing it, sort of finding space in this, this tiny little apartment. And I remember thinking, man, this is, this must be so hard. This is devastating to go from this kind of life to this kind of life. But I remember that that wasn't the disposition that they had in their, at least in the way that they were living. And the things that they were saying, that they seemed still at peace. In fact, they said, look, we still have everything that we need in Christ. They weren't completely devastated. It was hard. But they weren't devastated. Because they knew what their, the source of their greatest joy was. And that had not changed. See, eternal life is the, is the one thing that never fades when things get bad. And it's the one thing that gives us reason for joy, even if all the other things are, are kind of gone. Uh, Paul describes us in our life as disciples in a very interesting way in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, and 10. He kind of talks about the two realities that we live. The earthly reality, which could be really horrible, but then all the spiritual things about us that are still remain true. Uh, he says this, We are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. See the dynamic? That could be our lives. That very often is our lives. That there are certain, if you look at us from a certain point of view, man, we seem poor and wretched. And yet at the very same time, we are blessed by God. We have reason for joy. Let me ask you this. Could it be that the reason that we experience such highs and lows in our lives is that we aren't filling our minds and our hearts with the right kind of joy? Could it be that the reason we don't have a consistency of joy in life is because we're grabbing hold of these other joys which are good, but they're not the best? And so when things go wrong, all of a sudden we, we feel at a loss. And yet the truth is that we have still reason for joy because of the eternal life that God has given us. So that's the first thing, that it's not dependent, that even if other things go wrong, it remains true. But there's a second thing, kind of related, and that is that the joy of eternal life is permanent. It's permanent. It doesn't go anywhere. And that Brian Adams song actually helps to illustrate this as well, because he was experiencing the joy of, of a loving relationship, right? He thought everything was great, and then all of a sudden she dumped him, and he felt horrible, devastated. It was gone. And the truth is that every other good thing on this earth will likewise at some point be gone. And I don't think that we fully appreciate this truth. I mean, don't get me wrong, we find lots of ways to deal with this, right? This is the human life, that we're always finding ways to compensate for the difficulties of our life. I mean, when we get dumped, what happens? People come around us, and they encourage us, they comfort us, right? They feed us ice cream, they say, don't worry, right? You're, you're going to love again, there'll be someone else, it's okay. When we lose our job, people say, you know, don't worry, things will turn around, there'll be something else. When we get sick, people come and say, you can make it through. There's good treatments. They encourage us because they love us. And because most of the time, those things are, are true. We do tend to find other relationships, tend to get other jobs. By the grace of God, make it through difficult treatments that people love us and they're trying to remind us of the bigger picture of our life. But the problem with that kind of advice is that it can compound the problem. Because if we're just pointing each other to other earthly hopes, eventually those earthly hopes will also be gone. Eventually, the people that we love in our lives are, are going to die or we're going to die. And everything that we've been grabbing onto will, will be gone. This isn't meant to hinder you know, our depth of love for the people in our lives. But it is meant to remind us that there is only one thing that is permanent in terms of our joy. One thing that will always be with us, even past death, and that is eternal life, spiritual life itself given to us by God. And so as Christians, we should look at every other thing in our life through the lens of that, that ultimate joy. And that we should allow it to infuse us with joy even in the most difficult times of our lives. Because we do, we are going to experience loss. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be heartaches. The difference, though, when we remember the ultimate joy we have in Christ is that while we experience hurt and loss, we will not slip into despair. There will not come a point in our life where we think there is no hope because there is always hope when we have life in Christ. In fact, we see this in all sorts of different ways in the Bible. But here's, here's Psalm 30. Psalm 30 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, 
and give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I love that image of, of joy in the morning because what it, what it reminds us of, it acknowledges the truth that even as, as Christians, even as those following Jesus, there are going to be times of weeping. There are going to be seasons of weeping. This night of weeping that we might experience, it's not just one night. It could, be, it could be days or weeks or months. It's not that there isn't sorrow, but that we know there is always joy. That the morning is always coming. And even if that morning is when we wake up in heaven, the hope of it, the certainty of it, is meant to infuse us with such hopefulness that we do not slip off into despair. So here's some questions for us in terms of kind of bringing this home to our own heart, in terms of practically speaking, how then can we have this kind of joy? How is it that we live in a way where our joys are rightly prioritized? A couple of questions. Number one, what do you tell yourself when things go bad? Like when stuff, when stuff goes wrong, maybe it's your fault, maybe it's someone else's fault, just the circumstances of life, things go bad, what do you tell yourself? What do you do? Do you appeal to some other earthly blessing? Do you comfort yourself with other lesser joys? Do you try to dull the pain or distract yourself? Right? Do you binge watch Netflix shows? Do you eat a lot? Do you buy a lot? Do you drink a lot? What, what do you do in those times when things are very, very difficult? Or do you simply look to the other good things that you have in life and say, look, it's still okay because of this or this? Or do you fill your mind with biblical truth? Like, do, do you really, do you get on your knees, read through scripture, go to those passages where God speaks about who you are in Christ, and do you bask in the radiant glow of his favor, that he is with you, that he loves you, that he died for you, that you have every hope in heaven, even with all these difficult things that are going on in your life? Here's another question. What do you celebrate the most? What kinds of things do you, do you celebrate in life? Are they earthly things? Like circumstantial blessings, things that are, are good news, good news at work, good news at family? Or are they the things of spiritual growth and spiritual life? Like what is it that gets you most excited? You want to know what gets the beings in heaven most excited? It, it's spiritual life. It's eternal life. It's people coming to faith. We know this because we have a picture of it. I mean, it's stated a number of times in the Bible, but there's this, there's this parable, the parable of lost sheep that you might know. It's, it's basically talking about human beings as sheep, and we wander off away from God, and yet the good shepherd Jesus comes and gets us. But listen to the joy. I'm going to read it to you. Listen to the joy that's there in the text about the fact that people are found. So here's uh, Luke 15, 4 to 7. It says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." You see the joy there. The joy is that there's someone who is far from God. 
Someone who is off on their own, turned their back on God, lost in their sin, and that the Spirit of God, Jesus himself, saved them, brought them home, brought them back into the fold, and the angels in heaven are rejoicing. Can I ask you this morning, do you have that kind of joy? By that I mean, would you call yourself a disciple of Jesus? Do you have faith in the cross? Do you have life eternal? And if you don't, can I ask you, why would you settle for any other kind of joy? Why would you cling to the joys of this world that we know are going to fade and pass away and not grab hold of the joy of eternal life that, that brings us joy in this life and in the life to come? And if you have that joy, why would that not be the, I mean, at the forefront of your mind and your heart every day? I mean, we know the challenge, right? We know the difficulty of getting up and we're, there's always things to do every day and we get caught up in the, the day-to-day routine of life. But how much more peaceful and content and joyful would we be, might we be, if we begin the day by just praising God that our names are written in heaven and that we have the opportunity to go and share that joy with others. Because if we have that in our minds and hearts, it doesn't matter what happens that day, we will be content. We will be peaceful and we will be looking for those. Looking for those who are lost, those sheep, and bringing them into the fold and knowing that in heaven there is rejoicing. Man, I want to pray for that for us as a church. That that would be our joy. As individuals, and as a church, that when we, heal, we hear evidence of, of testimonies of God's work in people's lives, that man, we praise God like at no other time. So I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray for that um, and praise God that indeed he has done that so many times already. So join with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the joy of being your disciples. Lord, I pray that for everyone here, everyone watching, who would call themselves your disciples, whose eyes have been opened to see the truth that, that we need you, Jesus, that in our sin we are lost, in our sin we are far from you, in our sin we are grabbing hold of of joys and pleasures that, though they might be good for a moment, will not last into eternity. And so, Jesus, I praise you that you've brought us life. And I pray, God, that, that we would have this joy at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. Lord, Lord, not as a secondary thing, not as something that we've forgotten about. Lord, help us not to latch on to some other thing, maybe good thing that you've given us, but Lord, help us to have the right priority in terms of the good things you've given us so that we will always be content so that we will be at peace and so that even though we may be sorrowful, we can still be rejoicing in you. I pray that this morning, Lord, for those, for those that are struggling, would you bring to mind the, the truths of what it means to be a disciple and the joys that we have in Christ. And Lord, would you help us, help us to do spiritual battle with our own sin, with the influence of the devil, and Lord, may we help others so that they too can experience this joy By your grace and power, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.